Can anybody see? Is anybody waving? When you're falling in a forest and there's nobody around, do you ever really crash or even make a sound? When you're falling in a forest and there's nobody around, do you ever really crash or even make a sound? When you're falling in a forest and there's nobody around, do you ever really crash or even make a sound? When you're falling in a forest and there's nobody around, do you ever really crash or even make a sound? Did I even make a sound? Did I even make a sound? It's like I never made a sound. Did I ever make a sound? Chapter 7. Snakes and Birds Recovery comes slowly. You have to drag yourself back into the light. It is not glamorous. It is not romantic. It is bloodied hands and a battered soul. It is tear tracks on cheeks and bruises on knuckles. It is setbacks and handholds that tremble with your weight. Recovery comes slowly. But it does come. And it comes to Peter Parker, too. There are moments when it gets worse before it gets better. Depression is always considered synonymous with sadness, but Peter Parker knows that this is not true. Depression is not sadness. Depression is emptiness. It is being hollowed out and left to rot. It is reaching into darkness and grasping nothing but air. You see... Peter Parker knows only two emotions. He functions on the simplicity of zeros and ones. The robotic sanctity of fear and the absence of that fear. It takes a month of Prozac and a particularly heavy therapy session for his coding to begin to rearrange. And in the middle of a sentence, Peter Parker remembers that emotions are a spectrum. They are not switches on a circuit board. They are not black and white. They are not zeros and ones. They are more than fear and absence. And so the first emotion Peter Parker feels is not joy. It is sadness. Crushing, overwhelming sadness. He begins to cry so hysterically in the middle of the session that Dr. Layden has the receptionist fetch Mr. Stark from the waiting room. The man's suave exterior falters at the sight of Peter, curled around a pillow, hiccuping painfully as violent sobs shake his thin shoulders. Peter can just barely hear him have a hasty exchange with Dr. Layden before he plops onto the couch beside the teenager and tugs him into his arms. His mentor doesn't say anything. He just cradles Peter against his chest and hums a random tune until his sobs fizzle out. The sadness does not leave with the tears. He feels weighed down with it, like there's a storm-blown ocean crashing through every facet of being. He is soaked and freezing, and his knees tremble with the weight of each thundering wave, but he feels so alive. Peter's face is still buried in Tony's chest when Dr. Layden addresses him. Can you talk to us, Peter? What upset you? He is not upset. He is sad, but he is not upset. The ocean has fostered a flame. It defies all logic, but it is there all the same. The spark glimmers against the smothering vastness of his misery. He grasps at the fire, and it hums in his hands. He realizes that this is hope. Hope. 
because if he can be sad, he can be happy too. If you have an off, you can have an on. If you have a zero, there is the chance of a one. God, I'm sad. He pushes his face into Tony's shirt and feels his forehead press against his collarbone. The hope is shining over the stormy froth of his sea, making sparks dance along the waves. And despite the overwhelming weight of the ocean's assault, Peter laughs. I'm actually sad. I'm so sad. Tony's voice is hesitant. There is a waver there, and Peter can tell that the situation is unnerving him. Have you not been sad this whole time? No. Peter pulls his face away from his mentor's chest to meet his gaze. I'm sad, Mr. Stark. There is a lost, terrified look in Tony's eyes that tells Peter that the man hasn't grasped just how wonderful that realization is yet. I'm really sorry, buddy. No, 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 no. Mr. Stark, don't you understand? I'm sad. I'm not afraid. I'm not absent. I'm sad. Tony's eyes widen as Peter's meaning sinks in. He understands. Peter knew he would, eventually, because Tony Stark always understands Peter Parker. Tony Stark will never let him fall. That's amazing, kiddo. But how about we work on our next emotion being a good one, huh? Peter likes the sound of that. Every other day, Tony picks Peter up from school or his apartment and drives him to therapy. May comes, sometimes, but she's usually working. Peter tries to tell Mr. Stark that he can take the subway to the office, but the man shrugs it off. And so, Tony Stark waits patiently in a therapist's office, three to four times a week, every week, without fail. Peter leaves his most recent session with a spring in his step. He spots his mentor in the closest chair to Dr. Layden's room. The tiny gesture of protectiveness has become familiar, and yet it still makes the apathy and terror and sadness recede. More beach, less wave. Hey, Mr. Stark? Tony's gaze fixates on him instantly, Stark phone forgotten on his lap. Guess what? The billionaire gives the receptionist a parting wave as he gets to his feet and guides the teenager towards the door. What, Peter? Did you know that the acronym for social anxiety disorder is SAD? It literally spells sad. And I have sad. So sad. Isn't that funny? It's a crude, hastily composed joke. And maybe making puns about your mental health disorder isn't the healthiest thing in the universe. But it is Peter's first joke since the rooftop. So Tony laughs. Yeah, buddy, that is kind of funny. Peter laughs back. A flicker of mirth curls in his stomach at the way Tony's eyes light up at the sound. If I can laugh, it has no power. If I'm laughing, anxiety and depression are losing. Tony's thumb rubs Peter's arm as they walk towards the car. Was it a good session, buddy? Yeah. Can we get ice cream? Of course. The little place by Kent Street? Yes, please. I need to set something on fire. Tony looks up from his workbench slowly. Interesting proposition. What exactly? 
my list. The list of things you know? His mentor regards him carefully for a moment as Peter nods. Why? Because I don't need it. And why is that? Because I know what I know. I don't need a list to tell me that. And... And because it's okay to not know things, too. It's okay to accept that you don't know. I don't know what people think about me. That's something I can't know. And... And I need to learn that that's okay. That's very mature of you, Peter. The teenager shrugs, hands shoved deep in the pockets of his jeans. He is shifting nervously from foot to foot. Tony moves away and returns with a blowtorch and a metal bucket. He offers the items to Peter, but pauses before relinquishing his hold entirely. You don't have to do this. I know, but I want to. I don't need it anymore. He drops the list in the bucket, starts the fire, and watches it burn. Tony Stark will never let me fall. I do not need a list to know this, because these are not things I know. These are the things I feel. What does your anxiety look like, Peter? He'd never thought about that before. I... I don't really know. Where is it in your body? Can you show me? He points to his chest. In my lungs, behind my ribcage. Ribcage, ribcage, ribcage. What needs a cage? Do I need the... He catches the thought, cuts them off, and chokes them in his hand. No, I do not need you today. What does it feel like? He does not know why the image slips into his mind so easily, but it does. He gives voice to the thought, and it feels like something he has always known. A snake. A snake? Yeah, a slippery, hot and cold snake. Interesting. Dr. Layden gestures to an empty chair. Would you like to invite it to join us? Peter stares. What? Dr. Layden just smiles easily, as if this isn't the weirdest thing anyone has ever asked Peter to do. I'd like us to have a talk with it. Um... Okay? Peter looks at the empty cushion and tries to manage his anxiety. Within seconds, the snake is blinking back at him. Anxiety shifts to cock a head at Peter, meeting his gaze with abyss-black eyes. Sunlight glints off his scales. Peter studies him. The image feels like something he has noticed a million times before, but never truly understood. Never truly seen like it's been dancing on the periphery of his consciousness for as long as he can remember, ever-present but just out of reach. Dr. Layden speaks, but Peter can't bring himself to look away from the snake. Can you ask it how old it thinks you are? The snake says nothing, but Peter understands. This is a language they've spoken before. This is the language of fear. It is not made up of words. I am a baby. An infant? No, not that young. He doesn't mean it literally. He's saying it like the way Mr. Stark calls me kid. It's... affectionate. The snake's tongue flicks out, and Peter shivers. He doesn't want to hurt me. No? No. Peter is certain. 
he wants to protect me. Do you want to be protected, Peter? Sometimes. Is he the only one who can protect you? Peter thinks about the way May's arm snaps out across his chest when she has to break suddenly in the car. He thinks about the fact that Ned always offers to call the pizza place instead of Peter, because he knows that phone calls freak him out. He thinks about the dozens and dozens of protocols Mr. Stark put in his suit, each one designed just to keep him safe. No. Then why does he need to? Peter doesn't know. He's not sure if the snake knows either. I had a conversation with my anxiety today. Tony blinks. Once, twice, zeros, what? No. Yeah? It have anything useful to say? I guess so. It's a snake. A snake. Yeah. You... You did this with Dr. Layden, right? You're not cracking up on me. Peter laughs. His snake rests its head against the top of his fourth rib and blinks. Not a zero. Not a one. A four. It was an exercise. Cool. Cool. Did it help? He meets his mentor's eyes. For a moment, he is almost overcome by the waves of, I'm so worried about you, and I will do anything to protect you, and I love you so fucking much, kid, that are crashing behind his irises. There is so much depth, so much volcano and ocean and turbulent life. Why have I never seen this before? Why did I never think about how much he'd miss me? The snake uncurls. He does not need to protect right now. Tony Stark has it covered. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Tony smiles, and Peter feels one step closer to silence. Peter wakes up and wants to build something. It's a strange feeling. He'd forgotten how the urge to create crawled through the sinew in his wrists and itched at his hands until his fingers twitched with barely contained hunger. He calls Happy and asks if he can come over. Within an hour, he is standing in the living room of the tower's penthouse suite with none other than Tony Stark himself. Happy said you needed something? Can we work in the lab? There is a moment when Tony's face is overcome with an emotion so powerful that it nearly makes Peter stumble backwards. When he finally speaks, his words are slightly choked. Yes, Peter. God, yes. Anytime, kiddo. Offer's always open. Okay? Peter smiles. Tony's eyes light up. Cool. Yeah. His mentor wraps an arm around his shoulder and pulls him into the elevator. What do you want to work on? Oh. He hadn't actually thought that far ahead. I don't really know. I just needed to make something, you know? I know. The words are genuine. After all, if there is anyone who understands this feeling, it is Tony Stark. Want to play with the nanotech? Excitement lights in Peter's chest. Can I? Really? At Tony's nod, the teenager starts bouncing on the balls of his feet. Thoughts and ideas shoot down his spine and into his fingertips like electricity. The nanotech is awesome. 
The way you thought of encasing it in the arc reactor so that the bots can connect directly to the energy source is, like, one of the coolest things I've ever seen. How's Mark 37 coming anyway? I haven't seen it in ages. Did you fix the problem with the nanobots not being able to withstand the force of the... Peter cuts himself off when he sees Tony staring at him with a wobbly smile. What is it? Nothing. The man swallows hard and then ruffles Peter's hair with a shaky hand. I'm just real glad to get you back in the lab, buddy. The elevator doors open, and Peter is too distracted by greeting Dummy and you to see his mentor wipe at his suspiciously wet eyes. He never even realizes that that was the first time he'd rambled out of excitement in a long, long time. How are you feeling today, Peter? The teenager thinks about the question for a few seconds. His thoughts have been good today. Less circles. More broken oblongs. He can catch them in his hand, and they only wiggle away some of the time. Good. It's a good day. That's nice to hear. Dr. Layden leans back in her seat. Do you want to talk about your depression today? Peter swallows the uncertainty. These exercises may feel ridiculous, but they helped. Sure. Do you know what it looks like? Just like before, the symbol comes almost instantly. A bird. But his wings are broken, so he can't fly. That has to be frustrating. It is. He can remember the sky, but it's too far away now. He used to watch the sunset from a really high branch, but now he's stuck on the ground. Is he sad? Yeah, he doesn't know what to do. What's the use of a bird with broken wings? Peter watches him flutter, watches him fall. Watches him slump with defeat and tuck his head underneath a bloodied wing. I think he's just waiting to die. Life and death. Absence and fear. Zeros and ones. Zeros and zeros and zeros and... He snatches the snake by its jaw. When he lets go, it slinks between his ribs with a lazy hiss. The bird shudders. When he refocuses on the moment, Dr. Layden is spinning her pen between her fingers. Can't his wings heal? They've been broken a long time. I don't think they know how. Maybe they just need someone to help set the bones back in place. Maybe. After therapy, Peter sits on the roof of the tower and watches a storm roll in. It tumbles over the horizon and swallows up the sun. Peter revels in the way the clouds make a pit from deep in his stomach. He tenses his muscles and tries to hold it there, tries to capture the feeling. He thinks about his AP literature homework. Identify the tone of Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Cask of Amontillado. How does the author set the tone? How does it affect the story as a whole? Peter thinks about the question. The tone is suspenseful, ominous, foreboding. These are the same words that Peter would use to describe the storm. And yet, they are not right. This is a tone that neither Poe nor Peter could ever hope to capture. It is the moment before your foot slips on a tightrope. It is staring at the wall of a tsunami as it arcs above your head. It is standing on the ledge of your apartment building, leaning forward and leaning back, playing tug-of-war with gravity, wondering if you'll fall. 
It is the breath before you jump. The thunder comes before the rain. It fills empty alleyways and busy main streets alike. It does not care if you are old or young or poor or rich. It does not care if you are depressed or anxious or happy or sad. It swallows you up all the same. When the rain finally comes, it pours. The wind buffets Peter's clothes and tussles up his hair. He turns his face to the sky and tastes the water on his lips. Something in his chest releases. He is insignificant and it is beautiful. The storm does not care what Peter Parker does. The storm has no expectations, no opinions. It is brutal and wild and will take what it takes and leave what it leaves. And if it decides to leave Peter Parker, who is he to argue? Tony lets Peter have exactly ten minutes of solitude before he comes up to the roof, sits beside him, seemingly unconcerned with the lashing rain and the howling winds. Nice weather, huh? Sun's really something today. Peter smiles. The thunder is loud. Yep, thunder's sort of known for that, you know. His curls are sticking to his temples. He pushes them back with a frown. Do you think a storm can break a bird's wings? Tony watches him for a moment, before setting a strong hand on the nape of Peter's neck. Despite the chill on the roof, his palm is warm. Probably, if the storm is bad enough. Peter closes his eyes. He listens to the thunder roll and leap above him. He imagines that it is spiraling in his stomach, filling up the emptiness. I like storms. So do I. They're nice, aren't they? Yeah. Peter runs a thumb along the soaked hem of his sweatshirt. But they break things. He can hear his mentor's shrug pull against his sodden jacket. Broken things can be fixed. We're engineers. That's the name of our game, after all, isn't it? I've built an empire on fixing things other people couldn't. Peter feels as if he is teetering on the edge of a revelation. His next words fall out without thought. On solving impossible problems. Yeah. If you put something broken back together, do you think it can be better than it was before? Tony taps the side of Peter's chin until the teenager opens his eyes and meets his gaze. His answer feels like a promise. Absolutely. Peter's days begin to feel like breaths. Some breaths are gasped through clenched teeth. They ache against his ribs and made his heartbeat ricochet through his skull. Those breaths make his hands tremble and his resolve waver. Stormy oceans rise and fall and crash, and vipers hiss and broken birds do not fly. But the point is, after one breath comes another, sequential and yet independent. One bad breath does not mean a broken set of lungs. Stormy oceans calm. Snakes can be persuaded. Broken wings can mend. Because, while some breaths may feel like his last, oxygen is still there on his next inhale. And so Peter Parker relearns the joy of gentle breaths that slip through parted lips. Breaths that quiver out in laughter. Breaths that taste like May's perfume and Ned's fabric softener and Tony's cologne. Breaths that ache in his chest at the apex, but satisfy some deep, instinctual need at the close. Peter discovers that breaths can feel like revival.
They can feel like redemption. They can feel like, I am going to be okay. He learned to love the good breaths and accept the bad ones too. He knows that those moments of pain are only that. Moments. They are temporary, fleeting. They do not define him. That does not mean that they do not hurt him. That does not mean that on some breaths, the ache does not settle in his bones and curl around his throat and conjure thoughts that snarl with venom. But it does mean that Peter Parker learns that inhales come with exhales. That beginnings come with ends. That noise comes with silence. And one day, he will find it. The ends. So... I don't remember exactly how I came across Five Times Peter, um, this fic. Uh, I'm sure I was looking through the Spider-Man tag and looking for her comfort, and I found this. Um, and it really resonated with me for a number of reasons. Uh, I have a whole bag of, like, issues. I'm on the autism spectrum. I have, you know, not actually an issue, but when you're on the autism spectrum, it usually comes with other um, mood disorders and stuff like that. I have ADHD, um, I have uh, hypomania, which is also bipolar too, um, I believe. Mm, sue me, I'm, my terminology is not correct. Um, and I have uh, clinical depression. Uh, I was like diagnosed with ADHD pretty darn young. Um, and depression also, like that wasn't that I was diagnosed in elementary school. And uh, I've been going to therapy for years since I was eight. Um, I had very vivid nightmares, which apparently side effect of like, you know, if you have ADHD, that's a thing. So I started there and like pretty much continued. I'm 30 now. I still go. Um, and struggling with depression is a huge issue uh, for me. I mean, I haven't finished a degree uh, in college, even though I've gone to junior college for like seven or eight years on and off. Um because when my depression gets bad, I can't function. I, uh, like, I can do one thing, and if I'm working and going to school, obviously working has to be prioritized, because I have to be able to pay for where I live. Um, so not, not everything that Peter went through is true for me. Like, I have some social anxiety, but it's, I, usually I don't care about people that I don't know usually um it mostly acts up when like people I know uh like don't answer text messages or stuff like that and I think like oh obviously they hate me so that's not really a big issue for me but the the depression part of things really rang true um and uh you know being so sad you couldn't do anything that you want to die, but too afraid to do the thing, uh, really rang true for me as well. Um, as well as his struggles with medication. As I said, like, you know, um, I think I started being treated for depression when I was like 11 or something like that. So I've been on different medications that whole time and, uh, not to be a downer, but I mean, I've only had two periods where I really felt like I functioned like a normal human being um, for the course of like about two years each. And then um, one time I, uh, my body adjusted to the medication and it was no longer effective. And the second time there were some issues with insurance and I stopped taking it. And when I went back on, it wasn't as effective. So that struggle of finding one that works for you so you can be normal um, 
uh, and, you know, not really addressed in this because uh, maybe not something author had to do with, but when you have clinical depression, sometimes you have to remember like, oh, you know, my normal baseline is not everyone else's. It's me being pretty depressed and not functioning. Um, where uh, usually I think that like, oh yeah, me like being able to go out and get groceries and like go to work today is me functioning on a five and like, you know, a one or a two would be like, I actively want to die. That's not actually normal, like baseline functioning. Um, but with the medications as well, with the side effects, um, I've actually been really extremely lucky considering the, I've been through a ridiculous amount of them and I only had um, bad uh, side effects where I was more suicidal with one medication, which was actually just recently, just a couple of months ago. Um, so, uh, I recorded, I asked for permission for this a while ago and I just started recording it, um, uh, about a month or two ago. So I think I asked for permission a year or so ago after it was pretty close after Spider-Man Homecoming came out, I think. Um, so going back and re-recording this really relevant, uh, with, uh, chapter six with, uh, the bad side effects from medication, which went off. And then chapter seven, where he's actually functioning and like wanting to do things creatively again, which is exactly where I am at right now. Um, recording can be taxing just because I have a short attention span, but editing, oh God, is the worst. And if I'm depressed, I'm just not going to do either of those. Um, so I just switched to a new medication and I am, I'm doing the things I did. I mean, if you follow me on AO3, I've posted a number of things recently. Um, I've been sewing and doing other things and things are like pretty good right now. Um, so I think, uh, you know, the author really captured a lot of things for me as, uh, they said that, like, depression is super personal. It works different for everyone. Like, no two people have the same thing. Um, but I related to a lot of it, and it was a beautiful story. And I hope you enjoyed it, um, and you enjoyed my reading of it. Thanks for listening to The Reader's Notes. Bye.